In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, was the origin of the deep state uncovered in a 1953 congressional committee? Congressman Reese was in charge of finding out whether or not the foundations, the Guggenheim, the Carnegie, the Ford, the Rockefeller, etc., were conducting un-American subversive activities. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Author, researcher Stephen Harris is here to discuss America's secret history. You know, I can't believe it. I, uh, I took the boys fishing again this past weekend. We went to Branford to visit my mom and we were shut out again. We were on the Grand River, the exact spot, in fact, where their cousin, my nephew, had landed a couple of nice pickerels just a week before. 
and uh, not even a bite, not a nibble. And I think this is something like the sixth time we've been out fishing this summer and come up completely empty. I don't know whether it's too hot, whether we're using the wrong bait. I'm the problem or my bad luck, I don't know. But anyway, anytime we can spend some time outside near the water is time well spent, I always say, and we will be at it again, no doubt, next weekend. Stephen Harris became fascinated with the JFK, RFK, and MLK assassinations during his teenage years. Then came Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, released in the New York Times in 1971, which clearly showed the entire LBJ administration lied to the American public and Congress, causing the physical and moral devastation in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. That was bad enough, but then George W. Bush and Dick Cheney overthrew a sovereign government. There were no weapons of mass destruction, no proof of any terrorist activities by the Iraqi government. And thus began Stephen's 17-year investigative reporting of the U.S. government. He's now so proud to be able to present history buffs and the average book reader who's searching for answers, the truths behind the stories they don't want you to know. And it's all detailed in his brand new book, America's Secret History, How the Deep State, the Fed, the JFK, MLK, and RFK assassinations, and much more led to Donald Trump's presidency. Stephen Harris, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Wonderful, Richard. Good to be here. America's Secret History. And I'm, I'm proposing that this will be an ongoing series as you say, the book covers roughly 200 years of America's history. So we're gonna to focus today on part one and it really lays the groundwork for what follows in the book, obviously, but also what's happening today with regards to the deep state. But before we get rolling with that, I just wanted to throw this out. And obviously the United States right now is undergoing tremendous trials and tribulations. And we have this titanic struggle between these two forces, if you will, progressives, globalists, Marxists, perhaps. On the other side, we have those who claim that they are the patriots and that they stand for the nation state and law and order. And I'm just wondering how people might approach this book, whether or not it might be seen by some as, here we go again, the United States is down and here's another author or another book trying to demonstrate that the idea of American exceptionalism or the virtuous aspects of America, it's a myth. How would you, how do you respond to that criticism or approach? Richard, that's a huge question. I'll, I'll, I'll try to narrow it down. I've always seen the deep state, among other things, of controlling this country for a couple of hundred years between two political parties. And the way they control the population is by having everyone at odds with one another. As you just mentioned, progressives, uh, uh, law and order, Marxists, capitalists, gun control, Second Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we are at odds with what we have been trained for decades upon decades of being at odds with one another. And uh, the way we are controlled by the deep state, and which is what I think America's secret history shows from the early 1800s all the way up, is that we are controlled from behind by putting, it, putting us at odds with one another. And the whole key is that the, the deep state is what I call the P&W, power and wealth. 
And uh, Amschel Rothschild said once in the late 1700s or early 1800s, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't care who controls, I'm, well, as I said, I'm paraphrasing, I don't care who controls, runs a country, as long as I control the money. And the whole key behind America has been the control amassing the power and wealth into the few. And just as an example, as of February of this year, 60% of the world's population, roughly 5 billion people were controlled, were, were controlled by more wealth with 2,200 people. So 2,200 people owned more wealth than 5 billion people in the world. And that's the whole key, is the amassing of wealth. It's taking the poor, the middle class, the lower upper, upper class, and diminishing their wealth and increasing the wealth to the few, where one of these days, and it's coming very quickly, one of these days, the few will own virtually everything. And it's during this pandemic, it's even more clear uh, because uh, a few weeks ago, they announced that in the first few months of the pandemic, the top 14 wealthiest people in the world made in profit in those few months with, with the, with the, from the lockdown a half a trillion dollars, whereas 28 million people have just been announced are under potential foreclosure. Six million people a few weeks ago applied for food stamps, biggest in the country's history, even bigger than the Great Depression. So that's that's what I see. That is what is behind the NRA versus gun control, uh, abortion versus pro-life. It's getting us all to be at odds with one another so that behind the scenes, we can be controlled with the P&W, the power and wealth. Very early on in the book, America's Secret History, you talk about the origin of the deep state and how really it was exposed nearly 70 years ago in the House of Representatives, initially the Cox Committee, which was later reformed into the Reese Committee, again, 1953. So tell me about the formation of the Reese Committee and what it was trying to determine or find out. You've done your research. I'm proud of you, Richard. Absolutely. Yes. In, in 1953, the House of Representatives Cox Committee was reformed, as you just said, into the Reese Committee. And uh, Congressman Reese was in charge of finding out whether or not the foundations, the Guggenheim, the Carnegie, the Ford, the Rockefeller, etc., were conducting un-American subversive activities. Um, did they have political purposes and did they resort to propaganda? And Re Congressman Reese hired Norman Dodd, who was a prominent banker at the time and a lawyer. And Norman Dodd hired a uh, legal team, some other lawyers, and he sent letters out. Now, everyone has to remember, this is a congressional committee in 1953, as you said, about 70 years ago. And he sent letters out to all the foundations saying that they wanted to uh, look at their records. And these are tax, what we call tax-exempt foundations. Yes, the, the, the tax-exempt foundations, which is why, by the way, I should preface this. In 1913, February, I believe, the 16th Amendment was passed, saying that for the first time in the country's history, there was going to be a federal income tax. And part of that amendment called for charitable donations to be exempt from the income taxes. And so these foundations, which were established just generally speaking a few years before that amendment was passed, 
these foundations were able to be in the non-taxable format. And that's why they're called the tax-exempt foundations. And so none of the foundations responded to Dodd's request to see their records, except for one. And apparently the president of the Carnegie Foundation, who was a new, newly elected president, made a big mistake because he said that Dodd could send a representative from the committee to go over all of the minutes from the Carnegie Foundation starting in, I believe it was 1906. And so Dodd was quite surprised at this and he sent a lawyer down there and she read these minutes. She spent a long time, they wouldn't allow the minutes to, to, to leave the library, but she was allowed to read them in the conference room and she could not photograph them or, or do anything with them. But she could, re- could we just spend maybe a couple minutes explaining what these foundations were all about? You mentioned Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie. These were the major, major industrialists, the owners of the system, if you will, in the United States at the time, the railroad magnates, the, the banking establishment. And they, as you say, they took advantage of this new tax-exempt status for their foundations. Really, uh, yes, they did some charitable works, but mainly it was tax avoidance, right? Yes, it was a way for these so-called robber barons of the 18th century, except, of course, for Henry Ford, who didn't start until the early 1900s with the automobile. Uh, it was a way for these uh, uh, industrialists to take their fortunes and hide them away in these foundations and to be able to donate money to them on a yearly basis along with corp- other corporations and other wealthy individuals to uh, tax exempt to make tax exempt uh, uh, donations to these foundations. And so it was a perfect way to conduct their business. What was their business, Richard? I really can't answer you. That was really what the 1953 committee was asked to do. Were the foundations un-American? Were they subversive? Did they have political purposes? And did they resort to propaganda? And what Norman Dodd found out was that uh, they certainly did do, besides their charitable work that they did and their, their philanthropical work that they did, which they certainly did do, They were also un-American. And what they found in the 1911 minutes is they were asked a question at one of their meetings for their think tanks. Is there any means known to man more effective than war, assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people? And a year later, in 1912, the minutes showed that, that they came back. Those think tanks came back and they said, war is the only means to alter the life of an entire people. And that certainly shows what one of the huge reasons behind the foundations was to alter the life of the the United States citizens. And Right, and they they had certainly kind of innocuous sounding names, these foundations. Uh, An example would be the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which sounds like a wonderful you know, virtuous, mm-hmm. um, yes. laudable goal. And many of the, the Rockefeller foundations had to do with education uh, and so forth. So on the surface, ostensibly, it sounds like their purpose was the betterment of society, progress, things that, you know, it's hard to argue against. But underneath that, you're saying that there was a more sinister, nefarious motive, which was to subvert American society. Well, Dodd's, Dodd's uh, investigations from the minutes of the Carnegie Foundation were incredible. 
he found out two very important things that the the Carnegie and I believe the Rockefeller, but I'm doing that from memory. Let's not forget I have I've estimated I have about two thousand facts in America's secret history. I can't possibly remember all of them. I do have crib sheets in front of me, but I can't remember all of them. I believe it was the Rockefeller and the Carnegie Foundation, definitely the Carnegie, was controlling America's education, both in what our children learned and how they learned it and where it would lead them, where it would lead our children, starting from the early 1900s. And it's documented in chapter two in America's Secret History, exactly how they did it. Also, and this is astounding to me, the Carnegie Foundation to this day, to this very day, controls has to approve every high appointee to the United States State Department. Uh, not the assistants, not the secretaries, et cetera, but every high appointee, including the Secretary of State, and with full knowledge of every president since 1908, I think it was, has to, the Carnegie Foundation has to approve every appointee, high appointee to the United States State Department, which is, it's quite alarming. Right. When you and, think about it. And so is is there a yeah. connection between the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Council on Foreign Relations? Because most well, of most of these appointments come from the CFR. Exactly. And so there must be. But uh, I don't mention that in, in America's secret history. I couldn't prove it. But I certainly there's not one fact in America's secret history that that wasn't verified a minimum of two times. And I couldn't verify that. But I have to, my personal opinion is yes, Richard, I totally agree. It has to, there has to be a connection. So in other words, the objective of these tax-exempt foundations, these uh, 501c tax-exempt private foundations controlled by the most powerful families in the United States, private interests, was to take over the State Department in order to control American foreign policy. If you control the education of our children and our foreign policy, you are basically, except for the currency, which the Federal Reserve took care of, except for the, the, our currency, our economy, you control the country. And with regards to the uh, the education foundations, and there is a whole spider web of them that you document in the book, and you reproduce a chart in Correct. the bo- in the book as well, uh, showing how these private foundations interact with the the Depart- Department of Education and the government and so forth. How were these education foundations? How were they specifically sort of changing the culture at the education level? What were they introducing into schools, into the curriculum uh, that was, let's say, un-American? There was something like 12, 10 or 12 organizations that were started in the early 1900s by the foundations that literally controlled the high school and the elementary school education. So, for example, we have things like the Social Science Research Council, the American Council on Education, the National Education Association, the League for Industrial Democracy, the Progressive Education Association. You got it. The American Historical Association, the John Dewey Society. John Dewey, of course, ran for president. The Anti-Defamation League, the National Research Council. So, so these foundations are supporting the subversion of American concepts and principles. Things like, I'm imagining things like the sanctity of the individual, individual rights. So a move away from individual which is really what America is supposed to be about, towards more of a collectivism 
Exactly, Richard. Uh, that is basically what Norm and Dodd has gone into. In many interviews and in a very important book that was published in 1980 entitled The Tax-Exempt Foundations, where the author, which is mentioned in America's Secret History, William McElhaney, goes into in extreme detail, yes, it was collectivism that is uh, tantamount in the foundation's outlook in controlling education, without a doubt. And it's, it's, it really was startling to me because I always imagined in my upbringing, in, in my life, that it was capitalistic ideas, individualistic ideas that that we were all about, but apparently not. And so I'm imagining then that these foundations would pour money into, let's say, colleges, universities. Those Initially, those grants from these foundations would probably be no strings attached. But then later, you know, when the universities and colleges became dependent on money from the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Fords and probably the Mellons, then, then come the strings. And it would be, well, we want you to teach history this way. Is that the idea? I, I have to imagine so. Again, I didn't get into that in America's Secret History simply because I, I, I couldn't find it anywhere. But I have to imagine that everything you just said, Richard, is correct. Well, because we're seeing the fruit, really, of this plot, if you will, that was hatched generations ago. But now look what's happening in the colleges and universities. We have an incredibly radical, progressive faculty virtually running amok in in colleges and universities. And uh, I'm going to use the word infecting, infecting the minds of of students and churning out tens of thousands of postmodernists and Marxists, radical Marxists. And we're seeing that on the streets right now. I have to, I, I certainly can't argue against you. I, I mean, everything you just said makes perfect sense. So what did uh, the Reese Commission or the Reese Committee do with this information once they found out that these tax-exempt foundations were controlling or vying to control the State Department and the minds, the souls and minds of America's young people? What did they do about it? They released the report. And this is the conclusion of chapter two in America's Secret History. They released this, uh, uh, the report and it was lambasted by many columnists, politicians, other, other House of Representatives, uh, senators, simply because it was against uh, everything that um, the deep state wanted out. Uh, the president of the Carnegie Foundation, he must have been given 20 lashes for ever allowing Norman Dodd to send a representative to read those minutes because those minutes told, uh, just released a whole lot of information that the foundation certainly didn't want. And the biggest one to, to fight the report, the results of the report, was the New York Times, which is um, quite, well, I'm not surprised. Bec and there was never, in all the rebuttals to the report, there was never anything substantial that anyone pointed to to say that, to, to, to show that the results of, of Norman Dodd's fa findings were not true. They just lambasted it. How can this be true? How can this, you know? And, um, but that the New York Times, the so-called, what is it? All the news fit to print? Right. Fit to print? Right. Um, I, that the New York Times led the way is uh, quite, quite telling. More of my conversation with Stephen Harris when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. 
That time of the week to welcome back Colleen Forgas, our nutritional therapist and the manager at our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. Hi, Richard. I'm feeling electrified today. <laughs> Fantastic. I was going to ask you about that. Every time I take my boys out, to, they, they play tennis, they play hockey, we go skating, skiing. They're always they're always bothering me for a sports drink. They're A, they're expensive, and B, I don't even know what's in those things. Anything on the Full Script Dispensary to replace these sports drinks? Yes, Richard. A product called 40,000 Volts by Trace Minerals Research. It's an electrolyte concentrate that you can add to your own beverage. So you can just put it in water and rather than purchasing something that we don't know what it's, you know, all the chemicals that are in those common sports drinks, this will allow you to make your own. So it's really great in relieving muscle cramps, including nighttime leg cramps that people often get. And for anyone that might have a reverse osmosis water system, it helps to put back some of the minerals that those systems remove from the water. Oh, that's a great idea. So it comes in a powder, 40,000 volts. That's right. Fantastic. Thanks again, Colleen. Thank you, Richard. To get your 40,000 volts, go to strangeplanet.ca. Then click on the full script dispensary button. All orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Stephen Harris, the author of America's Secret History, is here. Let's talk a little bit then about the role of the media, the evolution or devolution, if you will, of the mainstream media in the United States. I want to ask you how you approach that in the book, America's Secret History. Well, this isn't in the book, what I'm going to say now, because it just happened a few weeks ago. But the New York Times op-ed editor that was just hired very quite recently, a year or two ago, was Barry Weiss. She quit and, and, and she wrote a, an open letter. And part of that is quite telling. Listen to this. I'm, I'm going to read a little part of it. Stories are chosen and told in a way. She's talking about what is written in the media. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now, history is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. And that is exactly what the media is. Everything is molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. And I can give a perfect example is during the, at the beginning of this lockdown, pandemic lockdown, the uh, leftist media, the MSNBC and, and uh, CNN and, and many others, always, almost always on the right side of the screen, I guess that's because most people are right-handed, I don't know, showed the number of deaths. Today it's 150,000, but back at the beginning it was 20,000 and 25,000 and 30,000 and 35,000. But never on the left side of the screen were the millions of people who were given a slow death by industries being closed and people being fired and maybe two months roughly into the pandemic, into the lockdown, something like 45 million people were filing for unemployment 
And of those, basically every expert predicted that half of them would never see another job. So roughly 20 million people probably would be slowly dying a slow death. And never on the left side of the screen was the other people who were dying from that lockdown. Right, the collateral damage. You got it. And that, to me, was the perfect example of what the media does. You know, they Barry Weiss said it perfectly. I'll say it for a third time. Molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. And so the, the media wanted you to see, wanted you to be scared to death that you were going to die. But it didn't tell you on the other side that there are millions of people who are dying a slow death. And that, in a nutshell to me, I could give you many examples uh, of, of what the media has done in the last roughly 75 years. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because, you know, you begin that chapter asking the question that why has the media, let's say in the last century, not reported very, you know, many or any of the facts contained in what you call real American history? So you say to understand this, we have to understand the mindset of the American media. So help us understand the mindset of the American media. There are six CEOs in this country, six boards of directors, six that control every newspaper, television and radio station in this country. Six. And when you have something like that, who they hire exactly who they want to report what they want and what they are told to report, and what they know in general that they can't report, and what they must report. When six people and six boards of directors have that control, then the American people are just as bad off as the people in Russia and Red China and anywhere else. Because in those countries, the media is totally controlled by the state. Well, in the United States, the media is totally controlled by six boards of directors. And everything trickles down to the editors, to the producers, and and those editors and producers know exactly what is expected of them. And nothing, nothing, unless once in a blue moon something escapes. But in general, nothing gets by them that they are not supposed to report in whatever way they are told to report. And the official story for many decades has come down to, the, to, to these producers and editors as that is what they are to report, period, end of discussion. It goes into everything. The Boston Massacre, 2013, when those uh, horrific bombs went off, and uh, two bombs, I believe, and uh, six people or whatever it was were killed. And, oh, yeah, I think it was three killed. So and many. And three killed and, yes, yeah, several hundred. Official, yeah, there was an official story there that not one producer, that, that I know of, that I saw, that I researched and found. There wasn't one producer or editor that made any mention of anything that didn't have to do with the official story. Right, that the Tsarnaev, the Tsarnaev brothers were both responsible, that they were Muslim radicals. Uh, and they probably or maybe were responsible. Mm-hmm. But that's beside the point. The point is, is that there were so many holes in the official story as is pointed out in America's Secret History. There were so many holes that should have been reported and asked by journalists who, who, who opened their eyes and their mind and, and said, wait a second, how did that happen when such and such, you know? And I can tell you 
some of the holes in the story. The first hole is one of the pictures that were flashed to hundreds of times in front of millions and millions of people were the two brothers walking through the crowds of the Boston Marathon. One of them with sunglasses, almost completely unrecognizable, and the other without anything, no disguise, no nothing. And these brothers presumably had the intelligence and the wherewithal to to make these bombs that not only were great bombs, if you will, but also that could be set off from a distance with a cell phone. And so these were pretty smart guys. And yet they didn't know that there were video cameras all over the place, that they should be wearing disguises because they weren't... Uh, uh, suicide bombers. Presumably, according to the official story, they were going to be going to Times Square in New York City to be exploding some more bombs. Right. And right. So they didn't want to. Get, so they didn't want to get caught. So if they were there in front of all those thousands of people and all those video cameras, why didn't they wear some uh, uh, disguises? Why didn't one journalist, one commentator, say why? Why weren't they disguised? Right, and in those same those same uh, surveillance camera images, the the brothers don't look like they're carrying backpacks filled with metal pressure exactly. cookers. Yes, that's a that's exactly right. And the other thing is, a few days after the bombings, the police had no idea where they were, and again, presumably they were heading down to New York City to explode some bombs in, in Times Square. Police knew nothing as far as where they were. And so they, they're in Cambridge, and there's a 26-year-old uh, MIT policeman, security guard, I'm not exactly sure what he was, sitting in his car with the window open, and they shot him in the head and killed him, which was horrendous, it was horrible. Presumably, after the fact, to take his gun, but they didn't take his gun. So these two brothers, not, not, not one journalist asked, why did these two brothers kill a policeman for his gun, but they didn't take the gun to alert the police where they are. No one asked that question. Right. I researched this for weeks and weeks and weeks, Richard. No one asked that question. And then they went on to carjack uh, a Mercedes. You got it. Kidnapped the driver, and they allowed him to escape. They, they left him. First of all, they didn't kill him, but thank God they didn't kill him. But they left him in the backseat of the car while they went into a convenience store to go to an ATM and to get something, I, I, I forget. They left them untied in the backseat of the SUV for him to just open the door and walk out. And call 911. Yeah, not one journalist that I ever found said, why? Why did they do that? They, they just killed, like an hour or two before, whatever it was, they just killed a 26-year-old boy, well, young man, for nothing. For no reason, because they didn't take his gun. And here's a guy in the backseat of his Mercedes, and they don't tie him up or kill him. Thank God. And then several out. Now, obviously, the police know exactly where they are. And they know what car they're driving. And they know the license plate to, to the car they're driving. And so they corner the two brothers in a suburban neighborhood somewhere. Now, you have to imagine that these police did not walk to this area. They must have gone in police cruisers, you know, so they must have had career cruisers there. And so the two brothers are firing guns and throwing bombs and 
and and one of the brothers, Zokar, I believe, I might have these facts wrong, but one of the brothers does go and runs up to the police and they shoot him. Um, and the other brother gets into the SUV and runs over the brother, his brother, accidentally, and drives down the street away. But not one cruiser chases them because they just let him go. Why? Why didn't any journalist say, wait a second, the police obviously had cruisers there. Why didn't they <clears throat> chase the brother in this Mercedes SUV to get him? And they didn't get him until the next morning. They found him in a boat in a backyard, someone's backyard. They found him in a boat and, and he was shot in his neck, I guess, from the shootout at, you know, where they were. Um, but no one asked these questions, Richard. Right, right. And, and inside the boat, he, even though he was injured, he managed to write <laughs> a 225-word manifesto. Uh, you believe it? Neatly re- written in pencil on the side of the boat explaining why he why they did what they did. Believe that, Richard? Yes. Yeah, and so he, right. the, I guess the and point here is the the you know whether or not they were responsible or you know whether everything that you just pointed out whether there's a reasonable explanation for it. The point is the mainstream media, the so-called investigative journalists in this country, didn't have the intellectual curiosity to ask those basic questions, and we see this time and time again. All the time. And I'm not even sure that it's intellectual curiosity, although, of course, with some, you may be right. I think it's that they are not allowed to question anything that the official story says. Now, remember, they're controlled. They're controlled by six CEOs, six boards of directors, everything trickling down to their producers, their editors, etc. They want their jobs. They know exactly what's expected of them, and they do it. Uh, the other curious thing is, as you point out in the book, that the investigators, not the journalists, but those that are supposed to try and figure out who perpetrated 9-11 or who was responsible for the for the plot to kill Lincoln or who, you know, who killed Kennedy. On the one hand, they say, well, we, we had no way of seeing this coming. We couldn't have anticipated this. We really didn't know that there was a, a plot. But then suddenly... Within 48 hours, they developed these incredible investigative skills yes. where they're able to piece it together and apprehend everybody involved. Interesting, yes. interesting dichotomy Absolutely. there. You know, I, I, I always laugh uh, at 9-11 where the Twin Towers, 110 stories came down. <clears throat> and um, at the bottom, the police found Muhammad Adda, who presumably was the was the lead terrorist. They found his passport intact and they found nobody, no body intact. There were only some body parts. And yet there at the bottom on the street, on the sidewalk, was Mohammed Adda's passport to identify the leader of the terrorists. Right. And uh, that's just a perfect example for you. Well, and not only that, again, they had no idea that it was coming yet within 48 hours. They have all... 18 names of hijackers and... and, uh, That's correct. (laughs) It's it's quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. And it happens with almost every uh, assassination or horrific act. You're 100% correct. 24, 48 hours later, uh, like with the Lincoln assassination, which is what you're you're quoting, I believe. Right. Uh, They knew nothing. You know, they had no idea about John Wilkes Booth or anything, presumably. 
uh, America's Secret History says, yes, they did. Uh, but presumably they knew nothing. And yet, as you just said, 48 hours later, they know everything. And, of course, uh, the, the mainstream media, which is supposed to be uh, kind of our first line of defense against this sort of thing, uh, just uh, go along with the official media, uh, with the official narrative. They don't question. They don't tug on any loose threads. Uh we're going to end uh, part one right here. I think we've set the table nicely, and in subsequent episodes, we'll drill a little deeper into things like the Lincoln assassination, the first successful coup d'etat, the, I guess, the assassination of uh, President Garfield, and uh, also uh, Lincoln, Kennedy, 9-11, and more. America's Secret History. Stephen, how do we get a copy? Well, normally, uh, I would love for people to... to to visit bookstores, brick and mortar bookstores, but uh, but in this pandemic, I don't know how many are open. So online, uh, Amazon.com, BNN.com, Powell's.com, BooksAmillion.com, any online store basically uh, has America's Secret History. Let me ask you just uh, in parting, did you have trouble getting this book published in in the sense that what you're I mean, what you're talking about is you know kind of radioactive. You're you're blowing the whistle. Yeah, you're not you're not playing the game. How did you get a publisher involved? Well, Skyhorse Publishing, uh, uh, the founder, the publisher, Tony Lyons, is amazing. Um, I mean, he he publishes uh, everything that should be published. He publishes Jesse Ventura. Um, uh, I, I think Oliver Stone. I'm doing that from memory. Uh, but he publishes. Uh, uh, everything that should be published, he's he's just incredible. And um, uh, he saw, apparently, that uh, this book should be published, and and he did. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to him, and I think he's great. Tony Lyons, a, a, a true patriot. Yep. As are you, Stephen. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for this, and we will talk again soon. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to give you a few details on an upcoming episode. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize-winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. I can't sit here and tell you I'm gonna live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized, and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering, and you'll receive an additional 5% off. ESS60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life. Discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider.
coming up next time, an independent researcher reveals what he's discovered while enhancing, enlarging, and analyzing videos of UFO sightings. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.